Thank you for listening to the podcast of Dublin Bible Church. In case uh, you have missed some of these messages, or maybe this is the first message that you would hear, whether it's here live or through podcast or online, I just want to say, uh, welcome, glad you're here. And this series is, is all about, honestly, it's all about something that you're supposed to, to start, and maybe something that's supposed to change in your life. And, and we believe that the only thing that is impossible to change in your life is what you never start. The only thing in your life that's impossible to change is the thing that you never start. You see, there's such difficulty that comes with the thing that you're supposed to start. That the very moment that, that God would maybe, we've kind of used these, these words and we've used them week after week after week of a preferred future. And I've heard some of you kind of wrestling with that. Some of you, and even part of, of Keith's story, if he were to tell you, and in, 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 in how long for the day, he'll have the opportunity to kind of tell you the whole story of, of him coming in. But his, he had a preferred future that was kind of put on hold. And yet something happens with all of us. When we have a preferred future, something happens in us, not just in the knowledge of it, but, but in the moment that we decide to go public with it. You see, we kind of put ourselves out there. As soon as we, we kind of go public with, with what it is that God is wanting us to do, maybe with the, the commitment that He wants us to make, maybe with the help that He wants us to get within our marriage, maybe it's that we need to start actually tithing and, or giving offerings for the very first time, and you go public with that to your spouse, and all of a sudden you're like, I know this is something we're supposed to do, but your spouse isn't quite on board, and there's that tension. And yet every one of us, when God gives us a preferred future of, of a desired place that he wants to take us, not everyone is going to be on board with your vision. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? See, there, there's a tension in that. I learned this a long, long time ago. I think I was in either fourth or fifth grade. I had this, this preferred future in fourth or fifth grade. And it, it, for me, I was... I was really kind of, a, I don't know if you'd call it a stalker, but probably. I, I, I bet her, her, her dad would probably say I was a stalker. And I, I had this preferred future, this idea. I had my eyes on this, on this little girl, and her name was Heather. And, and, and she commonly around our house is known as the snake in the grass, and you'll know why. Um, and my family, we, they kind of they laugh at me about this, and it's, it's something that it is, it is kind of funny. But... For me, I had, I had this idea of a preferred future that she was supposed to be my girlfriend, right? Fourth or fifth grade. Do you actually know what that means in fourth or fifth grade? Tell me. No, you don't have a clue. You don't have a clue. But I had, I had an idea. She was my preferred future. And whatever that meant, we were going to like share candy together or whatever that meant. Maybe play kickball together and I would always pick her to be a part of my team. I don't even know what that means. But I had an idea of a, of, of a preferred future with her. Well, all of a sudden, you know, I, I like I get up the gumption. I'm like, today's going to be the day. I had I had actually snuck around and got her phone number. And back in those days, just in case if you're younger than me, back in those days we didn't have cell phones. We actually had walls that were attached. We had phones that were attached to the wall. We really did. Do y'all remember that? And it had the, the little cord that coiled up. Well, kind of the rule in my house is we couldn't have a phone in our room. But I don't know if my dad was as sharp as he thinks he was. You see, the phone that I used was actually in the, in the hallway upstairs. So it had a very long cord. And what I decided to do on this day, that I was going public with my preferred future with this young girl, this grade schooler like I was. And I decided that I was going to call her. So I snuck around. I got her phone number. And I pulled that cord like piano string tight. Anyone ever done that? to try and hide a conversation, and I pull that thing. that There's no coil left, and it's pulled tight, and I go, and I, I close the door, and I'm having this conversation to have this preferred future with Heather. So I got up the gumption, and in that moment, I had just these dreams. We're just going to share bubblegum together. We're going to play kickball together. I'm always going to have her part of my team. And then when I go public with my preferred future with this young girl, and I call her, and she's surprised by my call because she didn't give me permission to call her. She didn't give me her phone number. I snuck around and got it from someone else, which always is the wrong thing to do. So as I'm, I'm in there kind of privately having this discussion, I can't say it too loud because I couldn't, have, I couldn't talk on the phone after 9 o'clock. It was kind of the rule. So I kind of pushed the boundary on that. 
pull that cord down tight, and I was having this conversation, and I said something, and I went public. And I went public, and and I had thought about, and I had dreamt about uh, of our preferred future. And then I put it out there, and I said, will you be my girlfriend? She paused for just a moment. And I I will never forget what she said. She said, not with you. I was crushed. It took 10 years for me to recover from that day. Every bit of self-esteem that I had was down the drain. You see, there's such... When you go public with your preferred future, and honestly, your preferred future is so much more important than that because it would be a couple years later and I would start understanding what love is. I would start to, and I've really... You know, the the longer I've been married, the more I realize what love is. And love is a commitment. It's an everyday commitment to love, to love your spouse. But, you know, a couple years after that, I would find the person who I was supposed to spend the rest of my life with. But in that moment, I was like, oh, she was my everything. Now, I will tell you this. Your preferred future is so important, though, isn't it? I mean, that's just kid stuff. That's just kid stuff. But what God is inspiring you to do is huge, is it not? What God has put in you is such a such a big deal. And it is so important that you go public with your preferred future. Because I can tell you what will happen. And this happens over and over and over. If you bury it, if you decide that you want to just stay private with your preferred future, the thing that God has put in you, one day you will resent it. But on that day to resentment, And in the days leading up, you will feel guilty because you didn't do what you were supposed to do. You will. So if you bury it, you suffer. The the good that you're supposed to do with that preferred future, the the good, whoever that is or whatever that is, suffers. And in that moment, if you allow that preferred future to kind of die, and if you bury it and you suppress it, you will feel guilt you will feel shame, and you will one day even re- you will regret, and you will resent that preferred future. And it all goes back to, are you willing to go public with what God wants you to do? Are you willing to go public? Are you willing to go public? See, I believe that God has been just kind of inspiring things, and He's been He's been inspiring things through this series. And, and I've I've said this over and over and over and over and over again. I've talked about a preferred future, and and I will until this series is over, and probably long into 2015. It is that important. But I also know it's so important not that you just have that preferred future, but that you go public with it. The person we're going to study in the Word today, he is he's put in a very awkward situation. He is, the, he is part of the second exile group coming out of Persia. The first group, he led a group of about 50,000 people approximately, and his name was Zerubbabel. Now, the person that we're going to see in this text is a guy by the name of Ezra, of which he wrote this book with the name. I guess he just ran out of creative names. He's like, I think we're going to call it Ezra. Works for me. So... Ezra is kind of like he's the leader of the second exile group. His group is much smaller. His group is much smaller. He has, he has about six to 8,000 people, approximately 2,000 men, maybe six or 8,000. We know that all the families came, so um, they had big families, so we're thinking that maybe it was six to eight. And yet he was, he was the one who, was God, who God was using to be a catalyst to bring the people out of exile into a, into a preferred future, a future that would take them back into their homeland, back to where they could settle and they could maintain worship and they could, they could build the temple and they could eventually build their homes and build the walls and the gates and they could have a normalcy of life in the promised land. And yet in... Even with all of that and knowing that God is inspiring it, he is put in a place of tension because he has to go before the king. He has to go before the king. But we know, and we learned this a couple of weeks ago, he went before the king and, and the king granted him permission just like the previous king had granted Zerubbabel permission. So now we see this in context in Ezra uh, chapter 7, verse 27. It says, praise be to the Lord, the God of our fathers, who was put in the king's who who put it into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. 
and has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials because the hand, this is the important part, get this, please, because the hand of the Lord my God was on me. I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He had gone before the king and he kind of pleaded his case and the king said, awesome, you can go. Take this group. It didn't come easy, but eventually he got to go. And now we see the context. Now, after this, uh, what we're going to kind of skip over, just because it's, it's kind, of like a, you know, kind of like a Hebrew phone book, but um, in the beginning of chapter 8 it is the list of all the family heads of the people who were returning back with Ezra. So you actually see the, the, the family heads and, and, and the men who were there, and then their families obviously followed suit. So now all of them are coming. So now we see the context, and if we could please jump into verse 15 of chapter 8. He says, I assembled them at the canal that flows toward Ahava, and we camped there three days. When I checked among the people and the priests, I found no Levites there. This is a problem. This is a problem. Because... Ezra was a man of God. He wasn't just trying to, to get out of town and go back to Jerusalem. His point in going back to Jerusalem is so he could reinstate worship, of which they needed the Levites. The Levites were the priests. They needed the Levites. So this is a problem. But there are no Levites. So I summoned Eleazar, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerib, Elnathan, I don't know why, maybe there's two guys by the same name, not really sure. Nathan, Zechariah, and Meshulam, who were leaders and Joharib, and Elnathan, who were men of learning. These are different kinds of people. There were some people, there were some smart people, men of learning, I don't know. And I sent them to Ido, the leader of Kesaphia. I told them what to say to Ido and his kinsmen, the temple servants of Kesaphia, so that they might bring attendance to us for the house of our God. So he says, hey, we have a problem, we don't have any Levites, but I'm calling some people to kind of fill in those gaps. Verse 18, very common theme. Because the gracious hand of our God was on us, they brought us to Sherebiah, a capable man from the descendants of Malai, son of Levi, and the son of Isaiah, Sherebiah's son, and Sherebiah's sons and brothers. Eighteen men. And Hashabiah, together with Jeshiah, man, these are easy, from the descendants of Merai, Merari, Maybe, possibly. And his brothers and nephews, 20 men. They also brought 220 of the temple servants, a body that David and the officials had established to assist the Levites. All were registered by name. All were registered by name. Now, we're going to kind of, we're really going to pour into these last three verses. This is going to be really where we, we kind of land and we really dig into, starting in verse 21. There by the Ahava Canal, I proclaimed a fast so that we might humble ourselves before our God and ask Him for a safe journey for us and our children with all our possessions. I was ashamed. Pay attention to this, please. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king, the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to Him, but His great anger is against all who forsake Him. So we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and He answered our prayer. First point is this. We have to go public with confidence. We have to go public with confidence. He does this. Now, and two different times in this text, he goes that Ezra is going public with confidence. Is he doing it under his own power? No. He says, because the gracious hand of our, of our God was on us. He's going, he's going public with the confidence in something that is greater than himself. He had surrendered himself as a scribe and as a man of God. He had surrendered himself to God, and he's inviting them to surrender themselves also. He proclaims a fast, and he prays. He's setting this, this great spiritual example before the people. He says, before we do anything, before we do anything, we're going to center ourselves before Almighty God because if God is not the one leading us, our plans will fail. And that's why I believe that he repeats this. And this is something that's, that's very repetitious in, in, in this, this book, this history book of Ezra. He says the gracious hand 
of God was on us. He says, make no mistakes. This, make no mistake. It isn't just me. It isn't just Zerubbabel. It isn't just going to be Nehemiah. It isn't just we decided to do these things and all of a sudden things happen. He says, no, the reason why they happened, the reason why we were able to accomplish this preferred future is because the gracious hand of God was on us. The gracious hand of God was on us. To to go public with confidence, it takes courage. Courage is not thoughtlessness. Courage is not thoughtlessness and caution is not cowardice. Here's what I mean. He goes public with confidence. He, he, He has courage. He goes before the king, but he's not being thoughtless, is he? Because we see he even wrestles with it a little bit in verse 22. He says, I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen. See, in that moment, he's living in the tension of, you know what? It would have been really kind of awesome to have some, like, to have a military backing us on this. But he said, I was ashamed. I was ashamed to ask the king for some military support because I had already told him that God was leading us to do this. He was living in the tension. See, it took courage for him to do that. It took courage. Would we all agree? It took courage. And it wasn't thoughtlessness. He knew that the gracious hand of his God was on him and on them as a people. As long as they were humbled before him, and as long as you are humbled before him, and as long as you continually seek him, you too can have a preferred future that God will direct and he will lead. But the very moment that you decide to go off script, that you disobey, you forfeit, you forfeit that preferred future. I'm not saying you can't gain it back, but in that moment, it, 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 it's gone. But at the moment you get back in fellowship with him, you can achieve that preferred future. What is it that God wants you to start? What is it that God is inspiring in you? What good is it that God wants you to do in the world today? What is the one thing that keeps you up at night? What is the one thing that keeps you from doing what it is that God wants you to do? Have courage, church. It takes courage, but you see... The, the idea of caution, also having caution is not being, uh, not being cowardice. He's cautious when he, goes to talk about, when he goes before the king, but then he's cautious because he says, I'm just, not just going to go about this all willy-nilly. I'm not just going to freestyle through this thing and think I got it all taken care of. He's cautious and he says, you know what? God is inspiring us to have this preferred future. I'm going to surrender not just, not just the, the, the destination, but I'm going to surrender the journey to the destination to God. Because I know, and, and he would say, and he declared, the gracious hand of his God was on him. I want the same thing said about us. The same vision that I shared with you last week really keeping in flow of this whole series. I want all of us, I want all of us to move forward with, with the preferred future for our church, but also your preferred future. Because I believe the preferred future that God is inspiring in you plays a bigger role in the lifeblood of this church. Courage isn't thoughtlessness and caution is not cowardice. We can be confident in the power of God. In Psalm 20, verse 6 through 8, this is, uh, it's not something that Ezra wrote, but it's, I believe, something that speaks into this and something that he would have believed. Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He answers him from his holy heaven with the saving power of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Stop right there for a moment. I'm going to go off script of your preferred future for just a moment. I believe that one of the things, and you will probably agree with me in this, and I'm not going to get on a government rant, but I believe in us as, as, as a government, as, and I'm not even talking about current leadership, but I'm talking about past leadership. I'm talking about decades of, of decline, of spiritual decline in leadership and in, in, in really in the course of our government. I think for us, we have fallen with this because we have trusted in chariots and horses. We've trusted in grenades and soldiers and military and we've trusted in aircraft carriers. And we've trusted in weaponry. We've trusted in, in all of those things. We've trusted in, in nuclear arms. And I think for us as, as a church, 
that we have to rise up and set such a, a holy example before Almighty God, that one that we can declare and say, you know what, we were able to do what it is that we, what we have done because the gracious hand of our, of our God was on us. Because we did not trust in military might, we didn't trust in our own self. Do I love our country? Absolutely. I served our country. But our president isn't, isn't the God of our country. Jesus is. Back to your preferred future. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Wouldn't that be amazing if that was the, the echo of your living room? Wouldn't that be amazing if you had a conversation with, with your loved ones this week and said, you know what, we're going to do things a little bit different, and now we're just going to, in the best way possible, we're going to trust in the name of the Lord God in everything we do. And the decisions that we make when, when you're raising your kids and the way that you love your, your spouse and, the, and, and how, your attitude when you go to work and say, you know what, we're going to trust in the name of the Lord our God. I'm not going to trust in my emotions. I'm not going to trust in Dr. Phil. I'm not going to trust in Oprah. I'm not going to trust in a self-help book. I'm going to trust in the Lord and, and just I'm going to pour into his word and I'm going to trust what his word says because some trust in chariots, some trust in, in weaponry, some trust in themselves, but wouldn't it be amazing if you could just publicly declare with confidence, I, maybe for the first time, I'm going to, to surrender my life fully, as much as I can fully, to Jesus. What would your marriage be like if you were to actually do that? What would your parents turn out like if you said, you know what, I'm going to govern my home just like the Bible says? What would your home be like? I bet it would be more peaceful. I bet if you were to do that, you would probably have a great relationship with your, with your kids when they're 25 and 30. But I can tell you one thing. If you don't hold true to what the Word of God says, it's like rolling the dice. It's like rolling the dice. We should be confident in the power of God. Charles Wesley said this, Except the Lord conduct the plan, the best concerted schemes are vain and never can succeed. He says, unless the Lord is inspiring it, unless the Lord is inspiring it, they're not going to succeed and your best schemes are vain. He says, we spend our wretched strength for nothing, but if our works in thee are put together, thou should be blessed indeed. That means we're not just going to go out and chase a preferred future ourselves. and I want to do this, and I want to accomplish this, and I'm going to do all these things, and I'm going to make myself feel, feel better, and I'm going to go out and earn this amount of money, and I'm going to do all of those things. He says, no. He said, the best thing you can do, he said, if you go out on your own to, to chase that preferred future, you will fail. But if God is inspiring it, you will succeed. You're destined to succeed says in Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about, and I don't even have, I mean, this is like a whole sermon in, in this one verse. Think about this. If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for a godly marriage then who can stand against that? Of course, it's rhetorical. If God is, is for you, and if God is for your preferred future, it is impossible for you to fail. That should bring you such hope. That should bring you such confidence. That should, that should add life to your preferred future, that, the vision, the thing that's kind of that, that you're restless about. That should bring life to that. Because if God is for us, who can be against us? And of course, like I said, the question is rhetorical. We know that the answer is no one, nothing. Lamentations three twenty-two through 24 say this. Because the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. For His compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for Him. Give you a little tidbit of information. 
this passage has actually reared itself in my life. I think, counting me speaking it today, this is the fourth time over the last two weeks that I've kind of ran across this. So this is like, uh, this is a, a, of a personal benefit for me, as much as it is for you. And I believe that the Lord's in the repetition. If he brings something to you multiple times, you're probably supposed to really dig into it because he's, he's speaking to you. We just need to listen well. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed. We're not consumed. Because of his love. For his, his compassions never fail. They're new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. We can be confident. We should go public with, with confidence because of the power of God, but also because of the faithfulness of God. Ezra was known as, and I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, as, as the second Moses. The second Moses with the Jewish people. Just a picture of somebody who, who didn't always do it right, but he was known as a great leader. And, and with Moses, and the same with you, if, if we step beyond ourselves and we trust in something that's, that's greater than us, we can go public with confidence into our preferred future. If we rely on the Lord's power and, and if we, we cling to his confidence like it says in this text. And then his, his mercies are new every morning. His compassions never fail. Because of his love we're never consumed. Never consumed. But your confidence will be tested. I know this full well. Those of you who maybe don't know this, I was in the aviation industry for 10 years. I, didn't, I wasn't a pilot, um, which means I was, I was a mechanic and not a pilot, which basically means I was broke, basically is what that means. And so, but I had done it for 10 years. I wasn't that great at it, but, uh, but I did it for a while. And yet God inspired us through a, a sequence of events that, that in that moment that our our preferred future was going to be in full-time vocational ministry. Well, I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. My wife didn't grow up in a Christian home, so that made absolutely no sense to us. But we knew that God was inspiring something around us, and, and really, we'd, uh, he really spoke to us at a, at, it was at a marriage conference, and it was confirmed the next day. But I remember... I had gone, we'd gone to our church family, and I talked to my pastor, and we were actually reminiscing about this a couple weeks ago when we went to see him in Florida. We were kind of reminiscing on, on the day that all these things happened, and we're sitting down on the church steps, and he remembers it well, and I remember it well, and we're just having a conversation. And I was just like, oh, pastor, I was just kind of pouring my heart out of him. I said, I don't know what's going on. I believe the Lord's calling me to ministry, and, and he's kind of asking me some questions and questions that he needed to ask me, great questions. And everything was great. We had all the fanfare. We went to the, to the ministry team there, and they were like so pumped and excited, like, you know, bring out the parade, the fat and calf, let's party. They were having a great time. Sorry, I went biblical on you. You know, all these things, and it was like, it was awesome, and everything was great. And then this big buildup, and we don't know where the Lord's taking us, but he's taking us somewhere, and it's probably not here. It's probably somewhere else. I mean, it could have been anywhere. And yet, see, all of that changed because the same confidence that I had, I was around all the people, and it was, we were all revved up and we were all excited. But when I decided to go public with my family, was my first testing of the calling that God placed in my life. Because I told you, we didn't grow up in a Christian home. So, sat my folks around the dinner table, was expecting fanfare and excitement and awesome, you're going to do great things, and da 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 da. And I was received with bitterness, rage, and anger. So all of this excitement, hey, I, I thought the revelry was coming. It was like, you know, we're going to have a party. We're, let's celebrate. God's doing this. There was no excitement. As a matter of fact, in that moment, it's like my dad had racked around and went, boom, and killed my preferred future. That's what it felt like. But it was in that moment, the tension of that, and I was wrestling with that, and I thought to myself, oh, Lord, I don't know. I'm just trusting your plan. But in that moment, my calling was brought into question. And do you know what God has done since then? We have continued on. Instead of, of honoring all of my family's wishes, because sometimes we have to have that testing. Sometimes we have to have that testing. 
We have to. And yet, when I decided to go public with that, we sat around and there was no fanfare. It was even in that moment that I, I started to see God working in my family. And I can tell you now, the same people who vehemently opposed us going into public ministry, God has brought us together and we have a closer relationship right now than I ever have in my whole entire life. Only God can do that. And I had to have that testing. I had to. I had to. Because it was in that moment that it was like that God was saying, are you going to honor the people around you? Are you going to bow down and cater to them? Or are you going to surrender yourself to me? Because you will not, you, you will not be able to chase that preferred future if you just let it die. Because not, not everyone decides that they want to get on your team. That was my reality. You see, I didn't know it at the time. I didn't even know the Bible at the time. I felt so inadequate to go into ministry. It made absolutely no sense. I mean, I had been trained to work on airplanes. We called ourselves knuckle draggers for a reason. Like, I'm pictured, you know, I was like, oh, I was going to work on airplanes, greasy hands, smell like fuel. I mean, that was my life. I felt so inadequate to do it. But yet I knew that I was able to go, go public with confidence because God was faithful even when I wasn't faithful. That God is powerful, especially when I am not powerful. And the same can be said of you. But understand this. Your confidence will be tested. If you could, please, go back to our text. Verse 22. Ezra said this. I was ashamed to ask the king for soldiers and horsemen to protect us from the enemies on the road because we had told the king the gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him but his great anger is against all who forsake him. I'll unpack that for you just for a moment. I believe in this text he's kind of wrestling with it. He says, you know what? I went before the king and said, king, you have nothing to worry about. We're going to go. God has told us to go. And it's almost, it's not in the text, but it makes me think that he went before the king and he says, King, you know, God's inspiring us to go, so you don't really want to stand against God. So then the king says, that's cool, you can go. And now Ezra is in this moment where he's getting ready to go not about 900 miles, travel about four months if they go nonstop, a group of six to 8,000 people of which he's responsible. And now in the moment he's thinking, man, it'd be awesome to have a military guard in me. It'd be awesome if we like had some horses and like some chariots or stuff around me. It'd be awesome if like we had some sort of protection. As a matter of fact, I had to go rally the people. Like we didn't even have the spiritual leaders originally, but I had to go rally some people together and they agreed to come. You see, he had gone with confidence before the king, but now it's being tested because now the preferred future of him going to the, the promised land, if you will, now it's being brought into question. And now he goes before the king and he says, Ah, oh, yeah, king, God has told us to go. You should probably just let us go. And he says, You can. And now he's traveling and he has all this, this responsibility. He's a man of God. But he feels all the weight and responsibility of leading this six to 8,000 people, 900 miles, about a four-month journey. He's in charge, and he's thinking, man, it'd be awesome if we had a military, we had somebody guarding us here because we're pretty well exposed. His confidence is being tested. But look how he responds in verse 23. Does he turn tail and run? Is that what he does? Verse 23. Read it for yourself. Does he turn tail and run? Does he say, oh, the burden is too much for me. I can't handle it. You've got to do something else. Who's going to be, yeah, I may be known as the second Moses, but you know what? Moses did some things wrong, and you need to put somebody else out there to be the leader. Is that what he did? Verse 23. Is that what he did? Come on, tell me. You know, he didn't do it. Verse 23, he says, so we fasted and petitioned our God about this, and he answered our prayer. God was the source of his preferred future. And now, when, when he's, he's being tested, and this confidence, now he's wrestling with it, and he says, yeah, I'm, I'm being tested, and now I'm this, this confidence that I would have, I know that God is more powerful than me, God is faithful, even when I'm not faithful. God is, is more powerful than you are, he's more faithful, he's faithful when you are not faithful. And now he's, he's living in the tension of this, and he says, you know what? I'm going back to the source of my preferred future. I'm going back to the source. So 
he petitions God. He prays. He fasts. He doesn't turn tail and run. He remains confident because he knows that God is inspiring him to do it. But your confidence will be tested. Romans 8.28 says this. This is probably a scripture you've heard of. Um, especially if you kind of grew up in church, you'll be familiar with this. It says that we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. And who have been called according to his purpose. See, I have to tell you, sometimes when you're, you're kind of living in that and you're pursuing that preferred future and all you can see is smoke around you and you know that God's given you a dream, He's given you a future, He's given you a hope, and yet you have all the smoke around you, this is a verse that you need to be comforted by. This is a verse you need to be comforted by. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. Who has been called according to His purpose? Every follower of Jesus Christ. What does that say about you? We've all been called according to His purpose. We all have. We all have. But destiny always comes with some uncertainty. It always does. It always does. And that uncertainty is is in us, but yet we, have, we can have confidence in the Word of God and the power of God, the faithfulness of God and the love of God because in all things, not just a couple things, but in all things, God works for the good of those who love Him, who've been called according to His purpose. That means that if God is the one who's inspired that preferred future within you, He will bring it to fulfillment. We can be confident, but that confidence will be tested. It will be there are two different types of testings. These aren't my ideas. Um, these ideas are actually from a guy by the name of Rick Warren, but it was so good I wanted to share it. Two different types of testings that we're going to spend just a little bit of time on. The, the first one is this, pressure testing. The pressure testing. And the pressure testing answers the question, how will you handle stress? How will you handle stress? The pressure testing. How will you handle it? Okay, so, so now you, you've been, you've been, you're moving forward with confidence. You've been given a preferred future. You're moving forward, and now that confidence is being tested. It, and what I would say is the testing is going to happen in, in one of two different ways. The first one is a pressure testing of how will you handle stress? What will you run to when things don't go your way? Will you go and do what Ezra did? Ezra ran right back to God. What will you run to? Will you run to an addiction? To find that place of comfort? Will you go run to a relationship? Will you run into yourself? Thinking, well, I, I screwed this up. Now I've got I to figure it all out. And I've got to do all this. And I've got I to wrestle with this. And I've got to handle this. See, those are the kind of places we go. But understand that, that the pressure testing is a necessary testing of how will you handle that stress? What are you going to run to when, when things go south? What do you run to when things go south now? Or when you think they go south, anyway? It's kind of like uh, my first car that I ever purchased off the lot was a 1994 Chevy Cavalier. It was a four-cylinder which means it wasn't fast, but it had a five-speed, which meant that the first two gears could fool me into thinking that it was fast, if you did it right. If you pop the clutch, you know what I mean. But in this car, it was my very first car that had anti-lock brakes. Well, every time I had started the car up, uh, you know, you have all the lights come on, and you don't want any of them to, to stay on, right, because that means something's broke, but all the lights kind of come on, and there was always this light that said, it said anti-lock and had like three little parentheses around it. It was like anti-lock brakes. And it was like when they were newer, uh, that idea was newer in cars and, and all those things. I knew that the car had anti-lock brakes and it was like, it was no big deal. Well, it was no big deal until you need anti-lock brakes. And then we're, we're driving along and actually I'm not driving. My wife is a stellar driver, right? So I'm just letting you know. She was driving and we're driving down Blanding Avenue in Orange Park, Florida. Very busy part of Florida. It's a suburb of Jacksonville, Florida. And we're driving down the road in this 94 Chevy Cavalier, which was a rockin' 90s teal. So it was of the era, which was also one of our wedding colors. That and mauve. 
That has no consequence to anything, just letting you know. So we're driving down the road. I'm going to recover. So I'm, we're driving down the road in this, in this Cavalier. We're kind of rocking along, and all of a sudden, the cars just start locking up in front of us. And now as this, this car locks up, and this other car right behind it literally locks them up and spins, literally goes horizontal in the lane. And all, all of a sudden, Marla locks the, locks the brakes up. But now the reality of that analog brakes really comes because in that moment, the car with analog brakes, what happens is it, it literally keeps the, the tires from just locking up and skidding. It kind of pulses the brakes on. And it was the analog brakes that kept us from a crash. And we literally were so close to the car that we would have creamed into that, that I, we couldn't even walk in between the bumpers or in between our bumper and what would be the side of their car. You see, I'd, I'd known what analog brakes were, and I could turn the car, and I knew the car had it, and all that was the big, that was the big thing of the day. And, but yet, when I needed it, then I became aware of what it was all about. For you, see, when the pressure testing comes, that's when you really see what your faith is all about. The reason why we, we talk about read your Bible and pray and do all these things, and it sounds so Sunday school, so the same things that your kids are learning, but it is so relevant in your life because I'll tell you this. Because when the pressure testing comes, that's when you rely upon the Word of God that you've been studying when things are going well. Because if you have a confidence in the Word of God when things are going well, that means when the pressure comes, when the pressure testing comes, you already have a basis of belief in the Word of God because the power of God and you are surrounded by the love of God. But if you don't have that basis in the Word, all of a sudden when the pressure testing comes, you start freaking out. Anyone ever freaked out? Anyone? Raise your hand if you just want to give a testimony. Just look at me. Don't look at the person next to you. Right? We've all done it, right? And yet, I bet in, in those situations in your life, if you would have maybe been a little bit better prepared, maybe known the Word a little bit more, had a little bit deeper walk with God, I bet the events that freaked you out probably would have been less severe in your life. Wouldn't they? Wouldn't they? You see, the pressure testing answers the question, well, how will you handle stress? What are you going to run to? What's your vice? You run inward? Run to an addiction? Run to a relationship. Some, some people just run to work and they hide at work. Other people hide with their family and they say, you know what, I've got all this stress, but I'm going to be a great mom. While everything else is like falling apart, they're like, I'm going to be a great mom. And you overcompensate in one area while ignoring another. The pressure testing. But then there's also the people testing, which says, how will you handle disappointment? That's the people testing. How will you handle disappointment? How will you handle that job loss? How will you handle when your spouse comes home and says, I can't do this anymore? People testing. How do you handle the, the idea of you have this preferred future and I'm so excited about it and God's doing this and you know that God put it in you and yet the moment you... Bleh, you put it out there and you go forward with confidence and you know that God is faithful and you know that He has a power far greater than any power that any human can ever possess. And the moment that happens, then the, the thing that, in that moment where you go forward and you want everybody to rally around what God is inspiring within you and yet they disappoint you. Much like my experience. What do you do then? What do you do then? My hope is that we would, whether it's pressure testing or the people testing, that we would result back to what Ezra said and what Ezra did. He went back to the Lord where he prayed and he fasted and he continued to go deeper in his relationship with God. You can't go inward. You can't go into an addiction. You can't you can't hide in another area because I have to tell you, the same issues are going to rear themselves somewhere else. And I believe that even in the midst of that, God brings that testing. Not because He wants to know what you're made of. He wants you to know what you're made of. He wants you to know what kind of, what is the basis of your belief. 
Is it just, well, we come together at church and we sing Jesus songs and we hear messages and I only fall asleep half the time and all these things go around and I'm, I do this and I give here and I, I, I serve and I do all these things? Or is it because you have a, none of those things are bad, but is it because of those things, those are things that you can control, all of those things you can control? Or is it because, you know what? I believe that the gracious hand of my God is on me because I've been richly blessed by Him. I am overwhelmed by His love. I know that He has a power far greater than me, and He's more faithful than I am. So I'm not relying upon myself. I'm relying upon Him because I want to say it. I want you to be able to say that the gracious hand of our God is on us. That's what I want for you. But do you want that for you? See, the testing comes not, not, because of, not because of ourselves, quite honestly. I believe that God does it because he wants, us to, he wants us to be forced to look at ourselves because when everything's going great and life's just rocking along, we kind of just put the blinders on, don't we? But when that disappointment comes, when that stress comes, it, it makes us aware of what we're actually putting our faith in. And I think that's necessary. Proverbs 17.3 says this, Fire tests the purity of silver and gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Maybe, maybe for, uh, for you and I, we just need to declare this from Psalm 26.2, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Test me, O Lord. Sift me. Try me. Examine my heart and my mind. What is my faith really resting upon right now? Is it good works? Is it that I'm just kind of, I'm a really good person? Everybody at work says I'm a good person. I'm a good mom. I'm a good dad. I work hard. Test me, O Lord. Try me. Examine my heart. I want to tell you this in closing. Although destiny always comes with a level of uncertainty, the last scripture we're going to read is this. Ezra 8, starting in verse 31. On the twelfth day of the first month, he set out from the Ahava Canal to go to Jerusalem. The hand of our God was on us, and he protected us from enemies and bandits along the way. Everything worked out like it should. The last point is this. I'm not going to belabor this point. Your confidence will be proven worthy if it's surrendered to Him. If it's surrendered to Him. The Word tells us in 1 Timothy 3.10, it says that, that spiritual leaders, specifically deacons, have to be tested. I have the opportunity today to share some great news. One of the things that God has really been inspiring and, and God has been moving in the life of this church and in the life of an individual I want to spotlight. He's been moving in his life ever since I've known him. Um, I, I started discipling Shane uh, four and a half years ago. It started on Friday mornings. And we would just sit down and have a cup of coffee together for a couple hours and just kind of talk through life and talk through Scripture. We started reading books. We started uh, just really kind of rallying around. He started doing ministry side by side with me. He's made many hospital visits with me. He, uh, he has shown through the course of his life that, that he, he would be someone who, who has a potential to be a leader in this church. And yet, I watched him. I watched him. But the word says in 1 Timothy 3.10 that says Christian leaders have to be tested. They have to be tested. The testing came for Shane when his job because of the economy, although it was an economy-proof job, right? Isn't that what you said? Yeah, quote-unquote. Although uh, that's what they said. When the economy tanked, so did his work. So he's been going through just how much time? A year? Two years? Well, I mean, it's been a decline for a couple of years, I would say. 
almost two years of, of decline of his job. But I've been watching him. And I've been watching him to the, to the level of saying, okay, he's got the pressure testing. He's even had some people testing. How's he going to handle it? You see, I believe that God was inspiring me to think of Shane as being a potential leader in this church, but yet he hadn't been tested yet. See, when everything's going well and you're making money and you're doing all these things and you're serving, you're maybe taking some steps forward, that doesn't mean testing. But yet, when the testing came, it really started to reveal what, what Shane's faith rested on. And in those moments, I saw Shane dig into the Lord to study more, to read more, and to even gain more accountability. What I want to present to you today, and this we have to do per the bylaws, I want to public, publicly present Shane Preston as being a deacon candidate at Dublin Bible Church. Now, per the bylaws, I give you an opportunity of 30 days. And after 30 days... Um, the following Sunday, if, if no one's come forth and said anything as to why he, he shouldn't be or a question as to why he would be considered for leadership in the church, if no one has come forth in the next 30 days, or if they have and we've, we've talked about and reconciled whatever needed to be reconciled, then in 30 days he will be instated as being a deacon at Dublin Bible Church. That's an awesome thing. We can clap for that. That's awesome. And this I'll tell you in, in, in closing, for real this time. One of the awesome, awesome things about Shane's story, and it connects with what we talked about last week. Our church, we long to be a church that helps people find spiritual direction, specifically to unchurched and dechurched people. That means people who have had very little experience or, or none at all in church. We want to specialize in those type of people. But then also the de-church kind of people. People have been in church. They know what church is about. Maybe they've seen the look behind the curtain of church. They've seen it. And yet for some reason they've distanced themselves, whether by their own doing or because of someone else's doing. And yet they've distanced themselves. What's amazing about and connecting last week and this week is this. Shane, for all intent and purposes, was de-churched four and a half years ago. He had been in this church. He had seen this church. He had been a part of this church. He loved the people in this church. But yet, for a multitude of reasons, he, he could not track on with this church. But he pressed in. When, when he heard me speak and, and going through and, and talking with his dad and his mom, he pressed in and he came back to the church. And he has been relentless in his, his pursuit of God ever since. He is a picture of of what the vision of this church can do. But he had to be tested, and he was. And he passed the first test. Will he be tested again? Sure. Am I tested all the time? Absolutely. Will you be tested? I hope so. Because I believe in that testing, it tells us, it tells us really what our faith is built upon. Mm -hmm.